Hi, this is Alan Ruff, the Thursday host of A Public Affair. If you have a moment and uh, the resources, remember to support the station. And if you will, head over to wrtfm.org to donate and to see what else is going on at the station. And good afternoon. Welcome to this, the Thursday edition of A Public Affair. I'm your host for this hour. My name is Alan Ruff. President Biden announced on January 25th that the U.S. will send 31 Abrams M1 tanks to Ukraine's military. The move prompted Germany to drop remaining resistance to sending its own heavy tanks and cleared the way for related moves by other NATO members. With the tanks en route, Ukraine's President Zelensky has ramped up the call for Washington to provide F-16 fighter jets to Kyiv, uh, in part to provide air cover for the tanks. Alongside the latest escalation in the ongoing provision of an expanding array of advanced weaponry, there's been a mission creep enlargement of war aims, an increasing and increasing calls for Russia's total defeat coming from hawkish circles in the U.S. and NATO countries. With us today to explore the changing situation is Anatole Lievin, director of the Eurasia Program at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, the Washington-based Nonpartisan Research Institute and information source, uh, an information source dedicated to exposing the dangerous consequences of an overly militarized U.S. foreign policy. A holder of a B.A. and Ph.D. from Cambridge University, Lievin worked from 1985 to 98 as a journalist in South Asia, the former Soviet Union and Eastern Europe, and covered the wars in Afghanistan, Chechnya, and the Southern Caucasus. He later went on to work at various Washington-based think tanks. He's the author of several books on Russia and its neighbors, including Ukraine and Russia, a fraternal rivalry. His other titles uh, include Pakistan, a hard country, and the recently revised Climate Change and the Nation State, the Realist Case. Today's discussion draws from two of Lievin's recent Ukraine-related pieces. The first, a look at the current U.S. NATO arms escalation and its possible consequences, and secondly, a critical examination of the increasing calls for Russia's total defeat. Anatoly Evan, in a piece uh, that appeared on January 6th, the day after President Biden's announced decision to send those Abram tanks to Ukraine, you noted, you noted that immediately after the announcement that the Ukraine government, backed by some Eastern European members of NATO, issued a call for the provision of F-16 jets. A discussion of the plane's transfer are (laughs) reportedly well underway. Um, What do you see as some of the more ominous implications of the latest arms escalation? The the risk is that Russia uh, will eventually decide to retaliate directly against NATO. Uh, it's surprising in some ways it hasn't done so already, given the level of Western support for Ukraine. Now, fears have concentrated on, uh, of course, the risk of nuclear war and that Russia will resort to nuclear weapons. I, I, I don't think, I mean, Russia would not begin with that. 
Uh, but um, there are other things that Russia could do. Uh, you know, that would begin a ladder of escalation that could well end in nuclear war. Uh, and, you know, when it comes, for example, to attacks on Western infrastructure, well, you know, given the, the latest reports that it was the United States that blew up um, the North Stream gas pipeline from Russia to Germany, um, Certainly, I think, uh, of course, that hasn't been confirmed by the United States, but it seems plausible. Uh, Russia would regard itself as having a, a legitimate right to do that. Uh, America would certainly respond, and, well, there we go. What do, you, what do you see as some of the more ominous implications? That is, you've pointed to, quote, a couple of curious features about this progressive escalation of Western military aid to Ukraine. They're ironic in one case, extremely dangerous in the other. Talk about, you've touched on it some, but go into it a little deeper if you may. Well, at the very beginning of the war, um, the, the vast, the overwhelming majority of Western experts, including military experts, uh, expected Russia to win a, a, a very quick and easy victory. Uh, and at that stage, there was no talk of sending heavy weapons to, to, to Ukraine. Um, of course, we'd supplied a, a good many lighter weapons already, which proved to be extremely effective. The, the, the escalation of Western weapons for Ukraine has come almost in direct proportion to Russia's growing weakness um, you know, and the, the, the repeated defeats of Russia. In, in its main objectives in Ukraine. Now, this has been covered in the West by the language that we have to give these weapons because this is an existential fight for Ukraine. And of course, um, this idea which we've heard again and again in Britain, in France, during the uh, visit by President Zelensky to Western Europe, which has just occurred, um, that this isn't just a fight for Ukraine, but that this is a, a fight to defend the West. Well. The point is, if you know, if Russia cannot capture Ukrainian cities, uh, which are less than twenty miles from the Russian border, you know, if Russia has been pinned to a, a very limited area of southern and eastern Ukraine, then the chances of a Russian conventional attack uh, on NATO seems zero. I mean, the Russian army is clearly in no position to take Kiev, let alone you know Warsaw or Berlin. Uh, and so the question becomes, I mean, is this uh, escalation on the Western side um, really due to, to fear of Russia uh, and desire to save Ukraine? Or is it, in fact, people trying to take advantage uh, of Russia's evident weakness to impose a crushing historical defeat on Russia? Well, if the latter... Um, and if, you know, as so many Western commentators, including myself, have said, you know, what the course of the Ukraine war really reveals is, the con is Russia's conventional weakness. Well, this is, you know, almost, you know, challenging Russia uh, to adopt um, unconventional means against the West. Go into and that. of which it has, uh, you know, a, a good many different ones that it could use. Go into that a little deeper, those unconventional means. Well, one of them, uh, which some experts I've talked to have 
been surprised Russia hasn't done it already, uh, would be to disable American satellites, uh, which have given so much help uh, to Ukraine in targeting and killing uh, Russian generals, in identifying and therefore stopping Russian advances. Uh, and the, for, for uh, Russia, the, the great advantage of doing that is that it, it wouldn't kill anyone. It wouldn't, you know, it wouldn't cause destruction or deaths on the ground or kill American citizens. So it would be, um, you know, it, it wouldn't automatically trigger war between Russia and the United States, but it would do huge damage uh, to, to America and to the Ukrainian war effort. Uh, of course, America would retaliate in kind, but Russia is much less dependent on this. Uh, other possibilities, um, you know, as I say, this um, piece by Seymour Hirsch uh, now alleges with, you know, some pretty convincing arguments that it was the United States which blew up the gas pipeline from Russia to Germany. Attacks on Western infrastructure, another possibility. What advantage of such a strategy from Moscow's point of view? What, what would it bring Moscow? You touched, of course, upon a kind of secondary or peripheral that doesn't really attack NATO or or the U.S. Uh, talk about that, if you would. Moscow's hope would be that you know, seeing such an escalation beginning and seeing that it could end in nuclear annihilation. Uh, that um, Western countries, uh, or at least Western populations, would start to demand a ceasefire in Ukraine. Now, a, a ceasefire would, of course, freeze Russia in its existing positions, which are you know, vastly more limited than Russia's aims at the beginning of the war. But on the other hand, uh, it would leave Russia in control of a land bridge to Crimea, um, Crimea itself and the eastern Donbass. Um, certainly, I mean, if Russia can conquer the rest of the Donbass in eastern Ukraine, then there are certain indications from Moscow that the Russian government would then actually offer a ceasefire or even declare a unilateral ceasefire and then basically, you know, uh, challenge the West to accept it or reject it. And if that were accompanied by the, the threat of escalation, then especially I think in Western Europe, you might have um, a good many more people who would be saying, okay, you know, the Ukrainians have won enough. Um, now it's time for a ceasefire and peace negotiations. So that would be the advantage from Russia's point of view. But to repeat, I mean, this would mean Russia giving up, um, you know, all it, the, its greatest ambitions that Putin held at the beginning of the war to subjugate the whole of Ukraine or to break off very large areas of eastern and southern Ukraine. Um, neither of those looks at all likely now. You're listening to Anatol Lievin, director of the Eurasia Program at the Quincy, Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. Per usual, we'll be opening up the phone lines at half past the hour if you want to join in the conversation with a question, a comment, give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 9. Anatoly Evan, you've pointed out that top Russian officials and commentators have said recently that Russia is now in effect at war, not with Ukraine, but with NATO, while at the same time leading commentators and Eastern European governments have declared openly 
that complete Russian defeat in Ukraine should be sought in order to bring down the Putin regime. Some have even called for this uh, to lead to the what is called the uh, referred to as the decolonization of Russia, uh, a code for the breakup of the Russian Federation and the destruction of the Russian state. That makes this conflict something very different. Well, it does indeed. Uh, And this is something that the the United States, every American administration during the Cold War, uh, was very, very careful to avoid. You know, the Soviet Union was allowed to collapse on its own, which it did, of course. It it broke up for internal reasons. Uh, But uh, the Bush administration at the time very carefully refrained from trying to drive this process because it was afraid that at that point, you know, this could lead to nuclear war. Um, now, I think the now. By the way, I'm not saying that this is the agenda of the Biden administration. Um, I mean, this is being driven by the most hardline elements. But in turn, you see um, uh, this language and the language of NATO itself being at war with Russia, which, by the way, the German Foreign Minister Annalena Baerbock has also said in public. Uh, it's hard to exaggerate how much this has helped Putin, the Putin regime within Russia. Because frankly, for Russia to have been defeated by Ukraine with you know, only very limited amounts of Western aid, which is what happened in the first weeks of the war, was colossally humiliating for Russia, given you know, the, Russia's much greater size, much bigger army, vast superiority in aircraft and tanks. That was a terrible military humiliation. Um, and quite frankly, I mean, the, the Russian government should have um, resigned over that because of its incompetence, quite apart from its criminality. But you see, the more people in the West say uh, that indeed it is NATO that's at war with Russia, well, that, in a way, that gives Putin an excuse. If Russia is fighting the whole of NATO, well, you know, Russia cannot be expected to win huge victories at that point. And this is, you know, he can make the argument that, yes, indeed, this is going to be a very long and bloody war. But the other point, of course, is that the more people in the West, even if these, you know, do not represent Western governments, say that this is a war um, for total Russian defeat, the recapture of Crimea, which the great majority of Russians regard as part of Russia simply, and even the destruction of the Russian Federation. This is being repeated. They are being quoted again and again and again by the Russian state-controlled media to persuade the Russian population that, look, now you you have no choice uh, but to support a continuation of this war uh, because the West is out to destroy us. You know, once again, I think these people should think a bit about just how much they are helping Vladimir Putin with this language. You know, it it brings back, you know, you used the word earlier in the program of uh, existential threat. You used it in the context of uh, a belief here in the West, in the, in the U.S. and NATO. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, but there's, in a sense, a clash of existential threats. Yes, I, I mean... And none of them are wholly real. Uh, in the first weeks of the war, there really was an existential threat to Ukraine. Not, not of genocide, but that Ukraine would be reduced again to a Russian satellite state, um, you, you know, with, with 
only very limited control over its internal or external affairs. But that Russian aim, as I say, was defeated in the first weeks of the war. And I at least do not think uh, that it can be credibly restored unless, you know, one assumes that the United States disappears from the world scene, which hardly looks likely. Um, so, you know, this is no longer really an existential threat for Ukraine, except in terms of the loss of limited amounts of territory. Now, it's not, uh, I think, an existential struggle for Russia as a state, uh, but it is uh, an existential struggle for Russia as a great power on the world stage. If Russia totally loses this war, it will be knocked out, you know, as a as as a great power. And of course, the American, uh, the, the Russian establishment, like the American establishment, is absolutely determined to prevent that. And as far as the United States is concerned, um, I mean, this war is obviously in no in no way existential unless it turns into a, a nuclear war in which it's existential for all of us because we'll cease to exist. Uh, but um, uh, undoubtedly, the complete defeat of Russia um, and its total loss of great power status, or if it ceased to exist, uh, or even if the Putin regime were overthrown and Russia were gravely weakened, that would really consolidate American global primacy and isolate China. And these are now, you know, core issues. Well, primacy has always been a core issue for the US foreign and security establishment or blob. And iso completely isolating China on the world stage is now um, also regarded as an absolutely core American aim. So, you know, th this is not for America as a country existential. It's certainly not existential for ordinary Americans. Um, but uh, for the um, for the Washington establishment, it has become a very important goal. Uh, in your piece appearing on January 26th concerning the arguments for total defeat of Russia, you argued that, quote, zealous advocates of Western support for the total defeat of, of Russia in Ukraine base their case on a disparate set of arguments, almost every one of which turns out on examination to be either exaggerated or wholly mistaken. Let's walk through some of these arguments. Let's begin with the uh, defense of civilization, uh, or the argument that the defense of civilization, or certainly Western civilization, demands the complete defeat of Russia. Yes, I mean, this is, uh, I think, a very sinister argument that takes one back, um, you know, to dark eras in European history, when, of course, all sides, or both sides, claim to be defending civilization against uh, barbaric enemies. Um, now, one of the interesting things here is that um, then, and now again in the Ukraine war, people elsewhere in the world... Uh, you know, including in American partners like India, including in um, democracies like South Africa and India and Brazil, see things very differently. Um, it rather reminds me of a, a, um, a famous saying by Mahatma Gandhi when he was asked what he thought about Western civilization. And he replied, it would be a good idea. Because, of course, from that point of view and from the point of view of international law, uh, people in these countries see far less difference between Russia and the United States, 
than people in America or in the West do. And they refer back, of course, um, to repeated American actions, which have uh, gone against huge majorities in the United Nations. Um, of course, the invasion of Iraq, but also the overthrow of the regime in Libya, uh, support, you know, virtually unconditional support for Israel, um, the intervention in Kosovo. Uh, and um, now, it, the great majority of these countries condemned Russia's invasion of Ukraine. It's not that they like it or support it or endorse it. Um, it's just that they, they do not see this in terms of, the, uh, of some grand civilization battle, civilizational battle uh, against, um, against barbarism, and they do not identify the West with civilization, uh, as a quite surprising number of Western liberals now seem ready to do. I, 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 I must say, I suppose I'm of a certain age like you, but I, I thought we'd given up that kind of language where the West represented civilization. Talk about the ongoing association of the Russian regime with Nazism. Yes, I mean, that is... Now, now look, I mean, first, let me say very clearly, uh, I absolutely uh, publicly denounced this war, the, the Russian invasion. I regard it as utterly criminal, contrary to international law, uh, brutal, cynical, um, and, uh, you know, also contrary to the interests of Russia itself, let alone, you know, what it has done to, 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 to Ukraine. Uh, but, um, you know, not every war of aggression is the same as Nazism. And atrocities by soldiers on the ground um, as part of warfare, um, especially uh, a form of uh, counterinsurgency, as has occurred in certain parts of Ukraine, does not amount to genocide. Um, these crimes are ugly. They have been absolutely rightly denounced. They have contributed you know, to tremendously tarnishing, shredding even, the image of the Russian army in the eyes of uh, international public opinion. Uh, but, I mean, they are not genocide, just as, to be brutally honest, similar actions by Western troops in wars in the past were not genocide. They were bad, but they weren't genocide. The, the suggestion of, of, of some comparison to the genocide in Rwanda uh, or the Nazi Holocaust, I mean, you only have to look at the, both the numbers and the intentions and the methods to see that these cases are qu quite, quite different. But of course, the, 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 the reason for this, um, the playing up of this, if, if, it isn't, if it doesn't reflect simply you know, emotion, well, understandably, but still emotion, not reason. But th there is, I fear, in many cases, a darker intention behind this, which is um, that, you know, if the enemy is a version of Nazism, then, you know, we all have to agree, as we would, I take it, in the case of Nazism, that indeed this enemy has to be not just totally defeated, but eliminated, annihilated. Um, and there can be no compromise, as there could be no compromise with Hitler. Well, you know, that is a, a horribly dangerous um, and unnecessary position to take in Ukraine. Um, and, you know, if you look at the great majority of wars, including wars in which you know, atrocities happened on one or both sides, uh, if you take the First World War, for example, um, you know, the 
as opposed to the second. Uh, I think the great consensus would be among historians that, you know, undoubtedly, you know, Germany was principally at fault, certainly, obviously, for invading Belgium, and Germany committed terrible atrocities in the process. But all the same, would it not have been better if a compromise peace had been reached in 1916, rather than, you know, going on to 1918 with all the horrors that resulted? Another argument of the pro-war camp uh, that you explore in your piece is the total defeat of Russia is necessary to deter China. Well, you know, uh, that I find so silly, frankly. The Chinese will make make up their own minds about what to do in the Far East. And their military capacity or incapacity to invade Taiwan is not affected by what happens to the, the Russian military in Ukraine. And by the way, the Chinese have demonstrated their, their view of this by not giving any significant military or economic aid uh, to Russia in Ukraine. Like other countries, they've expressed a measure of diplomatic support, but they have not actually helped Russia as they would have done if they believed this argument that uh, Russian victory was necessary for the sake of China. No, I mean, China's, Chinese policies will, be depend, will, will depend on, firstly, of course, what America says and does in the Far East and what Taiwan says and does, uh, and by Chinese calculations of Chinese versus American military power. That's what will decide Beijing. And by the way, I mean, as I say, since I hope you don't mind my saying, we're both of a certain age, you know, this, this line has come up again and again and again. In, in, it's a version of what in the British Empire was called uh, the prestige of the British name, you know, what in, in America has been called credibility. And look what that, you know, got us into. You know, you, you have to defeat North Vietnamese communism because otherwise American credibility will collapse and communism will spread to Thailand and India and eventually, I don't know, Kansas. You know, we, you, know, you have to eliminate Saddam Hussein uh, or American credibility in the Middle East will collapse. We know that this is nonsense. Again, you're listening to Anatole Lievin, director of the Eurasian program at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. If you want to join with a question, a comment, an observation, give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 9. Another, another argument you raise or another criticism of an argument is that the defeat of Russia is necessary to preserve the international legal order and punish the crime of aggression? Well, certainly uh, the defeat of Russia's uh, attempt to take over the whole of Ukraine, yes, it was necessary, and I, I believe that, and I, I therefore supported aid to Ukraine. Um, but when it comes to international law, uh, there was a rather brilliant piece by Peter Beinart in the um, New York Times a couple of years ago, uh, pointing out that America itself has, to, uh, has ceased to talk about international law. Instead, uh, you have this new formula, the rules-based order. Well, the difference is, you see, that the rules-based order is whatever America says that it is at any given moment. America makes the rules and it breaks them when it, it wishes to, something that is you know, very well recognized in most of the rest of the world. So, you know, 
unfortunately, America is not in a strong position to refer to absolute standards of international law over this. That's the first thing. The, the second thing is that, you know, when it comes to containing, limiting, trying to end conflicts or at least freeze them and end the heavy fighting, that the United States has not relied you know, on, on international law. It has relied on some mixture of pragmatism, uh, enlightened self-interest, if you like, a mixture of you know, desire for peace and a desire to protect American interests or just American interests. And to give one obvious example, when Turkey in 1974 invaded Cyprus and carved out a Turkish Republic of northern Cyprus. Uh, of course, there were criticisms and complaints in the West, but there was none of this, you know, belief that Turkey had to be totally defeated or that no compromise was possible, or of course, that sanctions, uh, let alone military action, should be taken against Turkey over this. And, you know, one can find so many other examples. Um, Israel, uh, India in Kashmir, and by the way, I'm not saying that, you know, in any of these cases, America should have taken a hyper legalistic or moralistic line um, because, uh, you know, so sometimes that is simply a, a, a recipe, unfortunately, for wars continuing and even getting horribly worse. So, you know, in international affairs, the United States has usually pursued a policy of pragmatism. Uh, rather than hyperlegalism, at least when it comes to American America's friends and allies. You know, Anatoly Evan, whenever I hear the phrase these days, rules-based order, I think of that old quip uh, that uh, about the golden rule that them that got the gold rule. <laughs> Indeed. 608-256-2001, extension 9, if you want to join us again with a comment or question. Along with the, among the litany of arguments uh, that you've uh, taken on uh, to deflate or at least critically appraise uh, is the one that the total defeat of Russia is necessary in order to bring democracy to Russia itself. Talk about the problems with such assertions. There is no evidence to support this at all. Uh, the strongest opposition to Putin, or these critics of Putin now within Russia, are in fact Russian ultra-nationalists um, who, bl who frankly blame Putin for not having invaded the whole of Ukraine eight years ago um, in 2014 uh, and would like Russia to vastly intensify its war in Ukraine, total mobilization of the Russian population. That's the first thing. The second thing is that um, while the uh, a complete defeat of Russia in Ukraine could indeed lead to the fall of the of the Putin uh, regime, that there is simply no um, you know basis in in evidence or, or certainty or even probability uh, that this would lead either to democracy or to um, if there were a form of democracy to the triumph of liberal forces, uh, and you know. The analogy here, once again, at least unconsciously, is to the results of the Second World War, when, of course, uh, well, the Soviet Union marched into Berlin, not, not America, but America did occupy and democratize West 
Germany and, of course, occupied and democratized Japan. Uh, but if you think that America can, can occupy and democratize Russia, then you are actually signing the death warrant of the world, because obviously Russia would use nuclear weapons to prevent that happening. Um, so, you know, once again, one has to look at uh, other uh, examples in history. And there, once again, the First World War is an example of how uh, the complete defeat and humiliation of Germany uh, after World War One. Of course, it led to a democracy in Germany, Weimar, but an extremely weak, unstable one in which the Democrats were constantly blamed by the nationalists for having you know, signed this peace of surrender, uh, and which, of course, led ultimately to the triumph of Nazism. So, you know, uh, <laughs> once again, I, I think this constant re reference back to the Second World War, conscious or unconscious, is extremely dangerous. That's very interesting because uh, Jade tells me that we have a couple of callers, and the first one, Steve, has questions about World War II. Steve, you're on uh, here. Yeah. Hello, Alan. And uh, I have an observation for Mr. Lievin to comment on, hopefully. I'm astonished at the, at the degree of historical amnesia on the part of recent U.S. presidential administrations, especially the Democratic Party administrations of Clinton, Obama, and Biden. The greatest military conflict in world history was fought largely in Belarus and Ukraine a mere 80 years ago. At World War II's conclusion, the Moscow regime vowed that the prime directive of Russian foreign policy was that never again would Russia allow a situation of a threat from the direction of Germany. Now German tanks are projected for war against Russia. Is the world going crazy, or is it just me? Uh, thanks for the opportunity for me to vent. Bye. Thank you, Steve. Well, yes, and I mean, the, the, the strange thing is about the uh, Clinton and, of course, other administrations since the end of the Cold War, is that they were warned about this. Um, you know, a, a string of leading uh, Russian, uh, sorry, U.S. ambassadors to Moscow, including the most famous of them all, the architect of containment, George Kemmel, warned again and again and again that the attempt to extend NATO to Ukraine, to turn Ukraine into uh, an anti-Russian ally of the United States, would bring about a catastrophic Russian reaction. The present head of the CIA, William Burns, in his memoir, published before he became head of the CIA, of course, the former ambassador to Moscow, quotes a minute that he sent as ambassador to the Bush administration saying that uh, Russian opposition to NATO membership for Ukraine was universal in the Russian uh, establishment and was absolute and was accompanied by the direst warnings of conflict if this happened. So all of these American administrations were warned about what was likely to happen and ignored it, as did the West Europeans, by the way, with even less excuse. Uh Let's continue on the phones. Uh, Tom has been waiting with a um, with a question or comment. Hi, Tom. You're on the air. Hi, thanks. Hey, uh, my quick comment, or well, question, I guess, is <clears throat> does um, does Putin and his associates profit from the uh, war in Ukraine? How so? And uh, how do you see that affecting the war? Well, Putin has certainly used the war vastly to increase domestic repression. In Russia, repression of opponents, uh, control of the of the media, which is now 
you know, almost absolute. Uh, but I, I don't think that this was a motive for the war because um, it really, you know, kicked in as, as Russia began to lose. Um, Putin obviously was expecting an easy victory. Now, an easy victory uh, would have boosted his um, prestige within Russia. Uh, but, you know, he was in pretty firm control of things already. I don't, you know, I, I, I do not believe that he, he launched this war chiefly for domestic political reasons. And there is indeed no need uh, to believe that because the historical, strategic, cultural, ethnic, emotional reasons for this war, um, as far as the Russian establishment were concerned, you know, are entirely sufficient to, to, to explain the Russian decision. Once again, that doesn't mean that it was a correct decision. It has turned out, as I say, not merely to be wicked, but also disastrous for Russia itself. Uh, but um, uh, certainly, I mean, the, the, the Putin establishment has not profited in material terms from the war. Uh, and indeed, uh, it's uh, pretty clear to me, at least, that they certainly they didn't expect such harsh Western sanctions as a result of the invasion, but they undoubtedly expected sanctions, which were going to hurt those of them with um, property in the West. So uh, I, I would see this as a war launched for a whole set of Russian strategic and historic reasons rather than for Russian domestic political ones. What do you say to advocates of the total defeat of Russia who view themselves as internationalists, that is, liberal internationalists, uh, and we'll divide that up because there's internationalists of the left as, as well, the left here in the States certainly, and I imagine uh, in Europe as well, uh, quite divided on some of these questions. What do you say to those advocates uh, who see themselves as internationalists uh, or progressive? Who support what's going on? Well, uh, I am, you know, entirely with them in the belief that it was necessary to support Ukraine uh, in order to prevent Russia from uh, either taking over the whole of Ukraine uh, or, or uh, annexing, you know, huge new areas of Ukraine. Um, but I, I, I would say to the internationalist supporters of, you know, the total defeat of Russia and no compromise with all the risks that this brings, it, that if they are indeed internationalists, then as the US Declaration of Independence has it, uh, they should show a decent respect to the opinions of mankind. And if you look at the opinions of most peoples and countries around the world, including, by the way, you know, progressive intellectuals, left-wing intellectuals in places like India and Brazil, you will find that they have a, you know, a very different attitude to this war and really want to bring it to an end through a compromise peace, in part because, of course, they see, as I believe we also ought to see, the damage that a continuation of this war is doing to wider human concerns, including obviously uh, risks to food supplies around the world, but also the distraction of attention and resources from uh, essential human goals, and most notably the struggle against climate change. 
Do advocates of total defeat of Russia somehow believe that they can imitate the imitate the Soviet and U.S. victory in 45, invade and occupy Russia and install their own governments, all this without ending the world in the process? Well, I, they don't believe this at a conscious level. I mean, they can't, I suppose. Um, but unconsciously, this, you know, this, this image of 1945 does keep coming back. And you know, I'm reminded during the the arguments, you know, for launching the invasion of Iraq uh, in 2002, 2003, again and again, the line came up. Um, well, you know, of course we can succeed in occupying Iraq and then turning it into a, a successful free market democracy. After all, we did that in Germany and Japan. And, you know, people like me, it virtually, you know, howled uh, about the total differences between Iraqi society, Iraqi history, and the history society states of Germany and Japan, um, which should have been evident to, to everybody, not just, you know, people who knew about Iraq and the Middle East. But, you know, 1945, even though it was mainly a Soviet victory, uh, was still the greatest you know, external victory in American history. Uh, and so I suppose people instinctively keep going back to that as some sort of model and precedent. Yeah, I don't think it's so much instinctively in, in the sense that the media mills, uh, Hollywood uh, and the, and the you know, mainstream press and so on and so forth, there's a almost a romanticization of the, the, well, the good war, the great war, uh, the war uh, for democracy and uh, the American way. Uh, and it's so much in, in culture, this side of the Atlantic, uh, that, uh, well, people are mobilized. There's been this, preparing for this program, I looked at some uh, you know, mainstream websites, CNN and so on, and the adjectives and, and the, the language that is used in what is, uh, well, supposed to be a quote-unquote news story uh, is beating the drum, beating the drum. Uh, there's, and critical, critical thinking, critical analysis is forced to the periphery. It's just the same in England. Uh, you know, it, it often seems that Churchill is the only historic um, British leader uh, that the great majority of uh, English people have heard heard of uh, anymore, um, and so every you know international conflict is rendered in Churchillian terms, despite the fact that of course there was one rather big difference between Britain and America in the Second World War, and Britain and America today, which is that we were actually fighting. You know, um, our parents, grandparents, were actually risking their lives, sometimes losing their lives in battle against Germany and Japan. You know, if um, if America had restricted itself, if Pearl Harbor hadn't happened, and if America had restricted itself simply to giving weapons to Britain, while it was British people who, uh, who were dying, and of course Soviets, um, then this historical image of America would, I think, not look quite so magnificent. You've mobilized numbers of criticisms, 
most of them that I see is very valid and important for lots of people to, to understand. Um, but I'm sure there's a listener or two out there who's saying, but so what? What then? What do you propose if you were able to have the capacity to influ- influence policy? What would you recommend uh, at this point? Well, I think that we have to start uh, not moving immediately to a ceasefire, but we have to start thinking seriously about a ceasefire and talking to the Russians and the Ukrainians uh, about this, Um, uh, especially if, uh, you know, the developments on the ground indicate that otherwise this war will go on and on and on without a solution. The second thing that I keep telling people is, which has been totally ignored, by the way, by all sides, uh, is that there must be, there should be a role in any final settlement um, for the wishes of the local people. What do the people in the Donbass, this must of course include refugees as well, in Crimea themselves want? Which country do they want to belong to? Um, That's for a final settlement. You know, uh, Jade tells me that, uh, as is often the case, we're getting very close to the end of the hour, but we do have <laughs> we do have a caller with a quick question. Hello, Steve, you're on the air. Oh, yes. Hi. Uh, yes, uh, I had a question on uh, how many war dead uh, total are there from Russia? And then I guess, uh, okay, I'll sneak a question in. And for young people, how do we negotiate to pr- to prove that war is not the answer? How do we negotiate? I mean, on the on the first, there have been many different um, estimates. Um, ones from reliable sources range up to two hundred thousand casualties, that wounded and dead, which would indicate about fifty thousand dead on the Russian side. Um, uh, Western uh, intelligence estimates uh, have said that uh, numbers killed and wounded on the Ukrainian side are roughly similar. Um, and of course, Ukraine is one third the size of Russia. So that's quite indicative. Uh, as to um, the war not being the answer, well, um, it's difficult because you know, in the past, and my God, one sees this contrast so much with the Germans. In in, in the past, um, this, you, you know, sheer leading for unconditional military support for Ukraine would have caused horror among a German generation who had fought in Ukraine in the Second World War, you know, whose relatives had died there and who saw the appalling consequences of the Second World War. Now, of course, that doesn't work in the same way for the for the present generation. Um, I mean, essentially, all one can do is um, two things, I think. Uh, one is uh, ask them, however hopeless this may be, to look at history and the results of the great majority of wars in, in history, uh, as opposed to this constant referring back to the Second World War. Look, look at, you know, look at American wars, look at Korea, look at Vietnam, look at the First World War. Um, and the second thing is, uh, just think a bit about what we are risking. You know, during the Cold War, uh, people were, you know, s- seriously concerned by the risk of nuclear annihilation, not because it, it was probable, but because 
you know, the, the, the danger, if it happened, was absolute, annihilatory for human civilization. And people took that seriously and need to take it seriously again. We have but uh, oh, a minute or so, a little over a minute left in the hour. Uh, tell, tell our listeners about the Quincy Institute for a sec and uh, how you might be reached or how they can uh, see uh, your offerings. <laughs> Uh, yes, well, our, our website is very easy. It's quincyinst.org, and our journal is Responsible Statecraft, which can be found you know, on that site. Uh, and we are a non-partisan, strictly non-partisan institute uh, who are devoted to promoting restraint in U.S. foreign and security policy. Uh, the, um, we oppose the militarization of that policy. That is not to say that we are not you know, also dedicated to a defense of America and the West, uh, but we do not believe that this has uh, required so many of the military adventures in which America and sometimes other countries like Britain have been engaged over the past generation. Um, and uh, we uh, support, um, as far as it can be achieved, uh, cooperation in international affairs um, you know, in pursuit of common human goals, like fighting climate change. Well, Anatole Lievin, uh, I want to thank you for giving us, uh, well, your knowledge and your time today. You've been listening to Anatole Lievin, director of the Eurasian Program at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. I want to thank him again. I want to thank Chuck for engineering, Jade for producing. I want to thank you, our callers. Uh, I've been your host for this hour. Chuck is telling me I have a minute, so I'll tap dance a little bit here. Uh, um, I, I had a, um, a, a dream or nightmare the other night, which probably indicates the, uh, the, the hopelessness of promoting peace in Ukraine. I, I dreamed that it was my, my job to teach a, a bear to tap dance. There you um, go. <laughs> well, uh, good luck with that project, and, and uh, I hope to have you on sometime down the road, Anatoly Evan. I've been your host for this week. My name is Alan Ruff, and I'll be speaking with you next week.